I encourage you, if you would, to take your Bibles and turn with me to the ninth chapter of the Acts according to, of the Acts of the Apostles. The book of the Acts of the Apostles. When Fred asked me a few weeks ago if I would uh, fill in this morning, uh, I cast about in my mind and settled upon this particular text. I promise you, I promise you, I did not know that um, Andrew would be reading uh, the particular passage that is the third time in the books of book of the Acts of the Apostles that the conversion of Saul of Tarsus is recounted. Three times it's recounted in, in the book of Acts. And chapter 9 is the first account, and then that's the third account uh, from which... Andrew read. So I just want you to know, I promise you, it was entirely by providence uh, that we're looking at the same passage. But if you would, open your Bibles to the ninth chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, and I'm going to read the first nine verses. Hear the word of the true and living God. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as I mentioned earlier this morning, that term, the way, was the means of identifying the early Christians. That particular construction, the way, occurs some six times in the book of Acts. Verse 3, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Think about that. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. All flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower thereof falls away. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's seek the face of God and ask His blessing upon the ministry of His own Word. Let us pray. 
great God of heaven and earth, we come and bow before you in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we do so to plead with you for the gracious and mighty assistance of your Holy Spirit to help us see, know, and feel the weight and the impact of your word upon our minds and our hearts. And we confess, O God, that unless you are pleased to send your spirit in such a manner, this poor creature would speak but in vain. And these your dear people would hear but in vain. And so be pleased, I pray, to negate and override all of the natural defects and deficiencies of this poor creature to speak your word aright and bless your people, O God, to the end that you would make your word precious and profitable to them, that we in turn may with the Apostle Paul count all things as loss that we may gain Christ. And I ask these things, O God, for the good of our souls and for your own glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I want to begin this morning with a question. And that question is, what is a Christian? And then the second question I would ask fast on the heels of that is, how does one become a Christian? And I think to ask such questions is easy enough. To answer them might be a little bit more difficult or challenging. Certainly to be a Christian is to believe some specific truths that we see in Holy Scripture. Saul of Tarsus as Paul the Apostle summarized the gospel once in these words, For I delivered to you that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. But we perceive very quickly, you and I, that it is not enough to believe these specific truths from the Scriptures to be called a Christian. Something more is involved as well. One might as well ask the question, what is it to fall in love? What What does it mean to fall into love? And one of the things I have done as a minister over the years is having the privilege of ministering uh, to people who want to become married to one another. One of the questions I always asked was, how did you meet one another? Very common question. Uh, It was always interesting. And then following up with that question, I would ask another question. I would ask, what attracted you to one another? And you can imagine I received all kinds of Interesting responses. One young man told me, he said, what attracted to me, what attracted me to my fiance was her mind. I've only received that response once. What is it to fall in love? Many of us have had that experience. 
And we know what it is from having experienced it. And yet, we would be very hard-pressed, you and I, if someone were to sit us down and try to draw out from us exactly how we would describe it in our own language. It is a glorious thing to be in love, even though one cannot really adequately define what it means to be in love. Here in this passage that I've read for our consideration this morning, one has a description of Paul's own conversion. It's a famous conversion. Most of us are familiar with it. And he is converted here when he was still known by his Hebrew name, Saul of Tarsus. No doubt one of the reasons that this narrative is included in the book of the Acts of the Apostles is because it primarily demonstrates the authenticity of Paul's claim to be a disciple or or an apostle. He had witnessed the resurrected Jesus Christ. And here, as he never tired of insisting, he actually met face-to-face the Lord Jesus Christ. But beyond that, there's a good deal more in this passage because what happened to Paul must happen to everyone who comes to Christ. Why? Because there's no such person, no such being as a person who is born a Christian. Saul Tarsus He tells us himself he had an impeccable religious background. He says he was from the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee. He even goes so far as to assert that before he met the Lord Jesus Christ as touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, Externally then, from the outside, in terms of the letter, Paul kept the law entirely. But that was not enough. If this account illustrates anything, it is that there is a very considerable difference between the two expressions, I found him and he found me. Saul of Tarsus was not looking for Jesus Christ when he set out on the road to Damascus. He was not looking for Jesus when the most momentous event of his life occurred. As a matter of fact, the one thing which drove this young rabbi, this member even as we may think of him, of the Sanhedrin court, that is the governing body of the Jews, not only in Judea, but throughout the entire Roman Empire. What drove Saul of Tarsus this day was his determination to extinguish, to extirpate, to wipe out from the face of the earth the church of Jesus Christ. He hated the sound of the name Jesus. And he was filled with a purpose, that purpose being to destroy whatever he could manage to destroy of the work of the Lord. 
And then suddenly, this account tells us all of that changed instantly on the road to Damascus with letters authorizing him to arrest Christians in that ancient city as well. Saul sees a light, a flash of light from heaven, heard a voice, the voice of Jesus Christ, and his whole life is immediately transformed. You have here a marvelous illustration of what theologians call prevenient grace. You say, what is that? That just simply means that grace comes first. Before anything else, grace comes first. And this is grace coming first in the life of Saul of Tarsus. And those of us who are believers in Christ can likewise affirm, oh yes, I've been converted. I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And all of us who can confess that are glad to say with the Apostle John, we love him because he first loved us. And referencing that famous poem by Thomas Francis Thompson, has anyone heard or read Francis Thompson's poem, The Hound of Heaven? I would encourage you sometime... Uh, in your reading, personal reading time to do that, but referencing that famous poem by Francis Thompson, The Hound of Heaven, relating it to, its, to his own conversion, the great preacher of Westminster Chapel in London, England, Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, the prerequisite of a path is that it leads to a road. I got lost, he said. I grew tired on many paths. But I was always aware, as was Francis Thompson, that the hound of heaven was on my tracks, and at last he caught me and led me in the way which leads to life. God pursues us, dear people, as the hound of heaven. God was going after Saul of Tarsus, and God always gets his man farthest. From the mind of Saul was this. He was not interested in this. Indeed, he had no concern for it. On the contrary, all of his inclinations were against it. But God was determined to have him. I venture to say that if we could go back in time a day before Saul's conversion to the city of Jerusalem... And we were to take a survey, gathering all the Christians together in the city of Jerusalem and conducted a survey and asked them, who do you think is the least, most unlikely candidate to become a Christian in the next year? I know who who would have won the survey hands down. The very man who was there consenting to the death of Stephen, the man whose conscience was stabbed by the preaching of Stephen, Saul of Tarsus. I bet, I bet those Christians would have all confessed, yes, Saul, he's the most unlikely candidate to be converted. 
If we could press that illustration, it's as if God would say, I'm going to fool the whole bunch of you tomorrow. I'm going to get that man. And on the road to Damascus, as Paul would testify later in the first chapter of Galatians, but when it pleased God, he's giving the time reference, when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace to reveal His Son in me when it pleased God. And what Paul is teaching us there in Galatians chapter 1 as he remembers and recounts his own conversion to us is that every genuine conversion to Jesus Christ when traced to its taproots finds its origin in the sovereign good pleasure of God's love in electing grace. Salvation is of the Lord. And that is true with respect to the very origin of our salvation. God initiates it in sovereign electing mercy. How can we forget those words of our Lord Jesus Christ in John 15 and verse 16? You did not choose me but I chose you. Now granted, they did choose Christ and they did so willingly and gladly. They laid hold of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith and His disciples followed Him. They heard the call of our Savior. They answered His summons to Himself and they chose Christ and followed Him freely. Yet still our Lord could declare to them, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And by that simple declaration, our Lord is bringing His disciples back to basics and reminding us as well that our conversion to Christ, it does not begin with our choice of Him but it begins with his choice of us. Or as Paul puts it in verse 4 in Ephesians 1, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You see, dear people, this serves as a firm foundation for our assurance. Our union with Christ does not hinge on our own feeble grasp of Him, but rather in His sovereign, omnipotent hold of us in electing mercy. Our salvation is firmly built on the immutable, the unchanging foundation of God's purpose in eternity to love us with an everlasting love. Now granted, this may raise questions which are not easy to answer as we wrestle with them. But dear people, these are not insurmountable problems. Such questions simply remind us, as Paul does at the end of Romans chapter 11, that God's knowledge of Himself and His ways transcend our, our narrow compass They transcend our finite and fallible minds. 
Paul calls upon us without qualification or objection simply to believe what he has revealed to us of himself in Holy Scripture. You see there, people, at the heart of this account in Romans 9 is not some great battle, not some seminal book, not some work of art or earthly empire. But what is at the heart of this account is the captivating of a human heart by invincible grace. Only God can do that. Only God can work the miracle of transformation which we call the new birth. But then in the second place, There's something else that is very startling and quite breathtaking about this passage. And I would be very far from insisting that Paul's conversion is a blueprint or a norm or a paradigm or a picture or a model for all other Christian conversions. Our experience with Christ is as diverse as as the number of Christians. Your experience is different from mine. Some of us came to know the Lord so early in life that we can scarcely remember when it happened. But dear people, what matters is not when it happened or how it happened, but that it happened. Surely you see that. God's mighty works of salvation or individual experiences of deliverance are not always so overtly dramatic as was the case with Saul of Tarsus. I'm reminded of a story I read once about the experience of a pilot from World War II who was flying a B-17 bomber and he was making a bombing run I've forgotten the name of the city in Germany, but he made this run during the war and his plane was hit repeatedly by Nazi anti-aircraft flak and it was striking the fuel tanks of the bomber. No explosion. (laughs) No explosion. He keeps being hit. No explosion. The morning after the raid, the pilot went down to ask the crew chief if he could have the shell that had hit The fuel tank, he wanted it as a souvenir. And the crew chief said, you mean, you want which one? He says, 11 struck the tank. He says, well, he said, I'd like one. He says, well, we sent the shells to the armorers to disarm those shells. Well, the armorers discovered that shells contained no charges. And they'd sent the shells on to intelligence. You see, all of those shells was were empty, except for one. And then it was a rolled up note that contained some words written in Czech. And uh, finally they found someone on the base who could read Czech and the translation was, this is all we can do for you now. So it was in the providence of God that there were these Czechs who were compelled to work in a munitions plant for the Nazi war effort. And they didn't blow up the plant or assassinate Hitler. 
They simply didn't put charges in many of the shells that they produced. And all of this was done very quiet and unseen, unnoticed, but it worked salvation all the same. And such is frequently God's work with us. Not all of his work is as noisy or dramatic as was the case with Saul of Tarsus. We may be tempted to conclude sometimes that God has abandoned us because we don't have eyes to see the hidden nature of God's work or we don't have ears to hear the silent manner of God's work. Nevertheless, others have had the same kind of startling encounter with Christ that Saul of Tarsus had. Some of you, perhaps, have had that kind of conversion. And there is this astonishing suddenness about what takes place in the life of Saul of Tarsus. The man's life is instantly changed. I'm not suggesting that no other influence from God was ever exerted upon Saul of Tarsus prior to this occasion. As I said earlier, he came under the Spirit-anointed preaching of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And Stephen was being stoned to death. It's God, as it were, pulled back the veil of heaven and reveals to Stephen the glory of God. And he sees the Son of God standing there. Paul was there, or Saul of Tarsus was there, but he saw nothing of the glory that Stephen was beholding. And yet he sees something of that glory a little later on the road to Damascus. I believe that when it says that the clothes of Stephen were laid at the feet of a young man named Saul of Tarsus who was consenting unto Stephen's death, I believe it had a profound effect upon Saul of Tarsus. And that conviction began. You find in Paul an extraordinary disquiet unease, a restlessness. He breathed out threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. The very intensity of his persecuting zeal is itself a testimony to the fact that something terribly was amiss in his life. There are Christian men who are married to non-Christian women and Christian women who are married to non-Christian men. And often relationships are strained because the non-Christian has such a great deal of trouble accepting the testimony and faith and practice of the Christian. But the truth is, just when that hostility, or I should say the fury of that hostility, is about to reach its apex, its pinnacle, one can see that the end of resistance is very close. When hatred of this kind, when hostility intensifies to the degree it did in Paul and in others, 
they're just about ready to cave in and say yes to that to which they had no idea of agreeing with before. You see, when conviction of sin comes, it comes as a fire. And it can burn in one of two directions. It can burn in the direction of hostility and bitterness, or it can burn in the direction of repentance and faith. At first, it drove Paul into a blind rage and sent him on the road to Damascus to wreak destruction on Christians. But God always gets his man. And as Saul of Tarsus was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians, Jesus Christ stops him dead in his tracks and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. He simply laid hold of the man and took over his life as he does when people come to him. God stormed the citadel of Saul's heart and captures it by grace. But then there's something further in this passage too. Well, really a great deal more, but only one other thing for which we have time this morning. I'm impressed as I read this account and reflect on it again with completeness, which characterizes Saul's experience. When this happened to Saul, everything was different. His whole perspective, outlook, is radically changed. He himself wrote, you'll remember later on, in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and it's as though Paul pauses and lays his pen down, and says, how shall I describe this? How shall I describe what happens when Christ comes into the life of a man? And he says, I can do no better than this expression, new creation, new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. He never looks back. He never questions or regrets his conversion. He said, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. And while he once burned with hostility toward Christ and his disciples, he now burned as a living testimony to Jesus Christ, to the transforming power, and invincible grace of Jesus Christ. And he meant henceforth to give himself, holding nothing back for the extension of the church of God. This was a significant event, this conversion of Saul of Tarsus, because apart from the Lord himself, I don't think it would be an overstatement to say 
that the most significant person of the first century as a Christian, perhaps of all time, has been this Paul. That was his Roman name, formerly Saul, whom the Lord claimed as his own and whom he used as a missionary, as a theologian, as a writer of New Testament scriptures. Unparalleled was he in all of history. Something struck me as well this week about the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. Saul is led by his comrades into the city, and there he is lodged in a house on what is called Straight Street. I'm, I'm told the place can still be visited this day, that is the street. And for three days, Paul sits there in darkness because he was blind after his Lord meeting event. <laughs> And then the Lord came to Ananias, a fellow Hebrew, but a Christian. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. (laughs) And you remember Ananias' response. He was afraid to do that. He knew Saul's reputation. Saul was a Christian hater and a persecutor. But nonetheless, at the word of the Lord, Ananias went. And he entered that room. And he placed his hands on Saul. And he said, and this is the way we could translate the verse literally. Saul, brother. Saul, brother. The Lord Jesus Even the one who met you in the way has sent me to give you back your sight and through me enable you to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now we see Paul is a member of another family. He now belongs to Christ's family. The styling of him as brother by Ananias is descriptive of a great deal that took place in this man's life. He is now Saul, brother. And to be sure, later an apostle, later a writer of the New Testament, a mighty preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but brother to all the sisters and brothers who were with him of precious faith in Christ. Two brief applications as I close. One, the Christians, and the other, for any among us here this morning who may be unconverted. How does this apply to us as Christians? Dear people, this ought to fill us with confidence. What hope do I have that standing up here and preaching is going to accomplish anything I can tell you right now, I am nothing but a poor, stuttering creature. But my hope and confidence is that God is going to be true to His Word. That He is going to accomplish that which no human speaker can can accomplish. My confidence is that God Himself is invincible. That he can take the most foul, the most deceptive, polluted, darkened heart and change it by grace. He did it with me and he can do it with anyone. Therefore, this ought to make us 
patient, patient, patient with our friends and loved ones who are lost. God does it in His own time. God is able, when He pleases, to take the hardest of hearts, break it up, and to make it good soil to borrow from the parable of the sower. And out of the heart produce love and faith and devotion to His Son. Oh, what a happy, expectant people we should be when we preach or share the gospel. Sow the seed. We do so in the hope, in the confidence that God will be pleased to bring His people to Himself. Those of us who know Jesus, who have met Him, who have experienced the light and the joy and the peace that He gives, cannot help but ravel in the recounting of what Paul experienced when he came to know the Lord. But the second application to unbelievers, there are others of you among us who still need to experience what Paul experienced firsthand. Maybe not in the same way or the same manner, but you need to experience the same change Nonetheless, it may be that you've been a member of this church for many, many years and you thought yourself, regarded yourself to be a Christian. You regarded yourself to be a religious person that you've pretty much done as Paul did. You've lived by the golden rule and to the best of your ability, you have kept all of the commandments. You've prayed thought yourself to be a believer, but you know in your own heart of hearts that you are still estranged from God and without hope in this world, that you've never really collapsed, that you've never really capitulated the citadel of your heart and given it to God. You do not know what it means to fall to the ground At his feet. My prayer for you now is that even as I speak, you may experience in your heart a certain kind of a flash of light. That flash of light which Paul describes as this, that God would shine in your heart to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I pray that because I know only God can accomplish that. The truth is, when that happens, sometimes people hear not a human voice, not my voice speaking now, but the voice of the hound of heaven who has been pursuing you relentlessly calling you by name and summoning you to himself. He stands before you in the gospel this day and that is what he is doing. Let us pray. Oh, Holy Father, we bow before you and thank you for your word. And we confess, oh God, that we never cease to marvel at the freshness of your word. 
that these documents written hundreds of years ago are a written word that speak to us today in our own circumstances. And though, Lord, we ask that the word proclaimed this morning will bear abundant and everlasting fruit even unto eternity. And we pray, O God, for any here today who have been running from the gracious, aggressive love of our Savior. Lord, overtake them this morning and arrest them by your grace. We pray, Father, for any in this place who perhaps have begun to have a spirit of contempt with the word preached here because of familiarity with it and who sit and nitpick at this or that or the other while thousands hunger and thirst for a word of life and power from your lips. Oh, God, deliver us from such a cursed sin. And then we earnestly pray that you would drive out from among us any spirit of unbelief. We do not want it to be said of us that you could not do many mighty works here because of a climate of unbelief. Oh, Lord Jesus, show us your glory that we will trust you for greater and marvelous things that will bring glory and honor to your own worthy name. Hear our prayer, O God, and be pleased to answer for the sake of your Son, in whose matchless and merciful name we pray. Amen.